Electronic Specifier. Hello and welcome back to Electronic Specifier Insights. Today we are joined by Sumit Sharma, who is the CEO of Microvision, a leader in automotive LiDAR technology. So hi there, thank you very much for joining us today and how are you? Nice to be here, Paige. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So if we could start, please, with an introduction of yourself and your background. I am the current uh, CEO of Microvision, and I've been at Microvision about seven years. My background is technical, based in, uh, in engineering sciences, effectively, and uh, been around quite a lot of technology over my career. I spent most of my time in um, developing some hardcore uh, R&D technology that was going to get productized. Uh, my passion for LiDAR uh, and effectively understanding how difficult this problem is and what a solution may look like started about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago when I was at Google X, where uh, I was there actually working on Google Glass, actually. Uh, before that, I was at a company that did AR technology. But while I was there, I was uh, closely working with some of the engineers on the chauffeur team, which became the, the Waymo team. And LiDAR was, of course, a you know, big topic there. And of course, there's lots of concepts of you know, how to solve this problem. Since then, you know, I, I knew about microvision technology actually as far back as 2006 and always knew and understood what was possible with this technology. So when I got a chance to move up to Seattle and actually work uh, for the CEO back in 2015, Alex Tokman, I took it. And from there on out, I've been trying to uh, transition the company over to LiDAR only. In 2020, I became CEO of the company, and I have focused all our attention and all our efforts in the LiDAR space, specifically on ADAS. Mm, sounds fantastic. So could you also give us sort of a brief introduction to, to Microvision as well? Microvision is like a magical company, founded in 1993 by some uh, visionary folks, I would have to say, well ahead of their time of what was even possible with the technology. It's a company that has been, you know, it prides itself in deep R&D and solving some really, really difficult, challenging problems decades ahead of everybody else, but really has an eye on productizing things. And so, of course, you suffer the fate if you are 10 years in advance or five years in advance of the market. You know, markets are at that point small, so you are, you're looking at small segmented markets, and they've always been looking for a commercial hit. Uh, you know, we've had partners like, most recently, our 2017 customer, which was Microsoft, previous to that, Sony, previous to that, Pioneer, and others, and of course, the U.S. military, that kind of tells you that when really difficult problems have to be solved in those you know, challenging applications, uh, people come to Microvision and we deliver. So we have a history of knowing how to deliver. Yet those markets are controlled by very, very powerful you know, global tier ones and OEMs. And these OEMs uh, are, are attempting markets that are very, very difficult. But LiDAR is a very unique opportunity where the market is not focused around one global OEM that there is a whole need in ADAS that has happened. So Microvision has sort of become in the spotlight with our technology at a very good level of maturity. So, so the, to just summarize it, it's, a, it's a, at a core level, hardcore engineering company. All of it has helped some global OEM productize our technology for their product. And now we're focused on productizing our own technology in a LiDAR product that a more general market is looking for. Excellent. Now, before we get into sort of LiDAR and advanced driver assistance systems in more detail, could you first explain what is meant by advanced driver assistance systems? Okay. So I think, uh, I think I get this question quite often. So I'm going to just, instead of like five levels of ADAS, I'm going to actually split the line and make it easy. It's actually two. In one side is what we talk about ADAS, which is driver assistance, where a computer 
is not in control, but it would assist a driver. And in most cases, people that, you know, 87 million cars sold a year, lots of accidents are really primarily not because of any kind of mechanical failure. It is really human error. So if you take a computer that can respond faster and intervene in a situation that's known to be dangerous, you could save quite a lot of life and property and injury. The other side, which is, of course, has got a much, much longer tail, is the autonomous driving, where driver is almost slowly taken out of the loop. By level five, the driver, you don't even need a steering wheel. So more and more of the control goes away. So really, there is a very distinct line. Level three and lower are driver assistance system. Level four and higher, of course, are going to be fully autonomous. Our focus primarily is driver assistance, where the highest volume will exist for decades to come. And a very strong proposal, a very strong solution could dominate the market, you know, with, you know, incredible engineering and incredible revenue opportunities for, as I say, for decades to come. So that's the most exciting one. And that's a more, a more difficult problem in some cases, by the way. Both of the sections are difficult, but this is difficult for some different reasons. And this is where, you know, I intend the company to be competitive. This does not preclude us from actually playing in the, uh, the fully autonomous space either. Our sensor would certainly, you know, be, uh, be able to enable uh, those technologies. I just don't see those technologies coming to a car dealer near you in, uh, in the near future. So monetizing a path remains with the ADAS solution. Mm, fantastic. Now, almost all vehicle accidents are caused by human error, which can be you know, reduced with ADAS systems. So what are some of the high speed safety features enabled by an ADAS system? So I think like, you know, let's just go back to our driving experience. You no, know, I'm a pretty safe driver. I've been driving all my life and I've never been in an accident. So I can tell you, you know, part of what it takes, and I would still consider myself what an average driver is. Most drivers are like me, they're average. They don't get into accidents all the time. So, you know, you would see something catastrophic happen. Think about yourself, uh, you're in the UK, so I'll use, uh, you know, uh, kilometers per hour. Imagine you're driving on a highway and you're in the center lane, you're going about 130 kilometers per hour and you're on cruise control. Adaptive cruise control, so everything is nice and calm. And in one case, right in, in the, uh, the right lane in front of you, maybe about seven meters ahead of you, is another vehicle. So you happen to be in their blind spot, all right? And at the same time, somebody else is maybe 20 meters ahead of you, so you're not in their blind spot, they can see you, right? And the person in the right lane looks around, doesn't see somebody, does not, does not really gauge that you are actually seven meters away, they think you're much further, and they start turning into your lane. At that kind of speed, if you think about everybody moving about 130 kilometers per hour, you really have a split second to react. And if you've ever been on a highway, I've seen that happen quite often, the driver in the middle lane will have an overreaction. They will overcorrect with the steering wheel because they see that there is an imminent crash about to happen, right? And that intervention, over-intervention, so let's call it, is actually going to cause an accident with somebody that's behind you. So there's this cascading effect. And you, you don't want to just sort of like let your car float towards the accident, but you also don't want to slam the brakes and you also don't want to turn the wheel. So it's, it's kind of a swarm of cars that is around you and you have to make a decision. And the best way to make a decision in that kind of split moment at a very high speed is you need a very low latency system, something that can actually process what's about to happen faster than a human brain. Your eyes taking in the information, your brain processing it, your muscles actually contracting to make an action, or your brain even processing what's the, just the right amount of steering pressure you want to apply. All those things have to happen in a much faster time frame than most humans can have a reaction. 
and you could actually avoid a lot of accidents if you could cut out maybe 180, 150 milliseconds from the time you actually decide to take action and by the time the vehicle starts applying whatever corrective measure it has to take. So think about a highway speed. You know, that's a very typical that all of us can visualize the terror that happens when you start noticing, well, that person did not notice me and they're about to come into my lane. Should I slam on the brake? Should I go in this direction? Now, uh, you know, there's many, many, many scenarios like that. And a lot of them also revolve around how other drivers around you, so if your vehicle is the ego vehicle, how other drivers around you are responding to other stimuli that they're seeing and overcorrecting and a cascading effect that would happen. At high speeds, this all comes down to very, very low latency times where your response and your proper execution or planning and maneuvering has to be flawless. And even then, you know, you have very short windows of opportunities to intervene. So if you think about ADAS systems we're talking about, level three, level two plus, or primarily level three, they have to have a real incredible understanding without, you know, huge amounts of machine learning algorithms running of what's happening within the scene and very precisely know within centimeters how far am I from the car, not, you know, meters, and be able to say at this kind of velocity of that vehicle and my velocity being here, if I slow down this much, I will be able to avoid it. That awareness has to be created and that is done with a LiDAR system. And it's not, it, you can't do that with a radar or camera module. And I think, you know, I hope we get a chance to talk about that. But for ADAS systems to work, primarily what they have to do, understand situational awareness, have a, get to a planning stage as fast as possible and execute a maneuver on a vehicle that you're driving. Mm. Well, following on from that point then, and as you say, sort of these high speed safety features are not possible with the radar or, or camera based systems of today, you know, and as an alternative to enable these capabilities sort of fleet wide and at scale, OEMs need to embrace LIDAR. So sort of to start with, can you give us a, a brief explanation of, of what LIDAR is, the, the different types available and how it's different to radar? Okay. So radar and LiDAR both are on a part of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? You're still talking about speed of light, except with the wavelength differences, what you can do is completely different. In a LiDAR specifically, you're using some sort of emission that is a photonic emission. So it could be 905 nanometer like we use. It could be 830 nanometer, 850 nanometer like some of our competitors use, or 1550. But this is all within the IR range. And effectively, what you're trying to do is you have to fire a pulse or multiple pulses, if you want to encode your pulses bounce off an object, so effectively you illuminate an object, and if you illuminate an object and you notice it, therefore the light has hit the object and returned back. And since the speed of light is constant, you know, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about general relativity here, you're able to predict if you can do nanosecond level measurements, you know, and from analog to visual conversion, what you're able to now do is predict how many meters, down to some centimeters, an object is out there. Now, that's the, the most uh, simplest way to describe it. Now, of course, there's other techniques in there, for example, multi-pulses uh, that you encode. So therefore, you can have, uh, you know, uh, one LiDAR cannot blind another LiDAR. These are the kind of features that we have incorporated in ours. But in general, most of the LiDARs that we talk about, it's, you know, kind of a very basic thing. You fire a photon, you bounce it off an object, and you return them. Except what a LiDAR system for ADAS has to do, it has to scan to a wide field of view in the near field, midfield and far field to maintain resolution and vertical. So it's a scanning system. Whereas typical LIDARs, like, um, you know, somebody plays golf, they will talk about like this range finder that's very popular right now. It's a single point range finder. They look down the lens. They can tell what the target is. In our case, you need a scanning ranging device that is digitizing everything in the field of view as it's moving live. So it's got multiple points have to be collected as fast as possible to get the highest resolution point cloud. 
Now let's if you go to uh, the other one, which is the nearest cousin, is radar. At a different wavelength, you know, there's no lenses, you know, you do an emission, you have an antenna, technology that's been known for, you know, several decades, you know, longer than LIDAR technology has been around. But the, but the biggest challenge with that is that you have either a wide field of view and low resolution or a narrow field of view and still significantly lower resolution than what a LIDAR will provide. And that's just because of function of the electronics and the emitting devices and the receiving devices on that side. Uh, they're pretty good at velocity, but only of axial velocity because they use Doppler effect. Otherwise, you have to use other software to figure out, you know, your, your uh, axial and your tangential velocity or your radial velocity, which you need both components effectively. And in a LiDAR, since you have so many pulses you can do and so many higher frame rate because you can fire a laser much faster than you can do a radar emission, you're able to do a little bit more uh, with the LiDAR and get a much higher resolution view. Now, camera modules have been around for a long time. Of course, Mobileye, everybody knows about. They know the story, you know, quite a success. But camera modules, you know, effectively, they are passive collection devices. They need some, another illuminator to illuminate something, and they would be collecting. And so they are very, very sensitive to dynamic lighting situations. Like, for example, if you're out on a bright road and you're looking through a tunnel, how fast the CMOS sensor can be adjusted for that dynamic range, there's always those kind of challenges that they go through. But, yeah, if you're like within five or ten meters of a car, it is a cheaper solution, right? But if you are, if you're looking at, you know, all the way from like a meter in front of the bumper of the car, all the way up to 200 meters, that entire range can be covered by a LiDAR. So as you think about, you know, there's a benefit to every technology, there's a detriment to every technology. And, you know, of course, you have to talk about, you know, the benefits and the detriment side by side, otherwise it's not a fair comparison. As you look at those two, you, you'll get like a matrix of uh, things that you can do with the LiDAR, radar, and camera module. One sensor by itself can be a dominant sensor that can make the entire application work. Of course, you know, my premise, the entire company premise is LiDAR is that central figure. And of course, as you look at some of the things that uh, Mobileye talked about publicly, even they're conceding that LiDAR is a central figure of it. So, you know, our premise has been actually correct that if that's available, you digitize at a much faster pace, you're able to do more with a much smarter sensor. You know, a question that you may ask, and uh, quite, quite a lot of investors and um, um, people at meetings ask me, well, what happens in, in, uh, in the case of a rain? Yeah, in the case of a rain, a radar will not lose any kind of uh, resolution. But since it's starting off with such low resolution to begin with, it's not that much of a benefit. You're still kind of blinded. But in the case of a radar, when you have like 10 million points per second, let's example. Let's say more than 5 million points per second. Several of those points could be dropped because of raindrops, but you're never driving through a waterfall. <laughs> so you're still going to have a significantly higher, richer point cloud, high fidelity point cloud that can be utilized to keep making decisions for planning and maneuvering. And in most cases, a level 3 ADAS system is not enabled when there is weather conditions. Recently, I rented a car. Uh, I was in, uh, you know, um, West Coast in, uh, in the United States, and it had an ADAS system in there. And it just so happened to be a massive rain that happened. And I was just, you know, uh, completely the ADAS system was engaged, and it clearly says disengage. And I would say even after about 35 minutes or 45 minutes after the rain event was over, just because there was just mist in the air, the system would not let me engage. So there are, you know, safeguards that are already put in as in nobody's going to be driving this in like a blizzard condition. Nobody's going to be driving this in a monsoon because in those conditions, you want the human driver engaged because ADAS level three and lower, the human driver has to be in charge, right? The, the, the computer is there to aid, not to take over.
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, that leads me sort of onto onto my next point. Obviously, you've already mentioned sort of adverse weather conditions, but are there any other sort of perhaps limitations to LiDAR technology that you could tell us about? I think, I think LiDAR technology, the limitation is always going to be how cheap can you make it? Because again, it's a sensor that's got lots of things that are, has to be inside. A lot of technology has to be packed inside to make it into the sensor that's required. How do you hit a certain price point that an OEM wants? That's always number one, by the way. I always talk about that. You know, anybody I've ever talked to, you know, uh, any automotive OEM, that's the first question. Explain to me how your path, your value chain path is. The rest of it is, of course, you know, what is, what is your product roadmap look like? You know, what is the invention path look like? How do you advance this? You know, is this a technology that's tapped out or is this something that we can keep advancing for a long period of time without incredible amount of investments? Uh, as far as the physics is concerned, you know, this is where we're fortunate. There's lots of work that's been done. The physics is pretty well understood of LIDARs, what they have to perform, what's the reflecting target, what happens in, in areas where there is quite a lot of smog, what happens in areas that are high altitude, what happens if there is a, you know, uh, the asphalt is made out of cement and it's kind of bright. So all these things are understood and you can test for that. So that does not actually deter us from fielding a product. The rest of it is all regulation and the comfort level of what kind of features an OEM wants to deliver to the consumer. Mm, excellent. Now, you've, you've already mentioned sort of the, the different levels of driving automation, but could you sort of walk me through these levels with specific attention as to how LiDAR will operate in relation to these levels? I think level three, which is where most of the, you know, level three, a, a similar system that's out on the market is the Daimler S-Class, which announced last year. It's uh, limited to about 60 kilometers per hour. The best feature I could describe for that is what we call a traffic jam assist, meaning that you're in some sort of stop and go traffic up to 60 kilometers per hour and a minimum range. And at that point, the system will take over. So, you know, if somebody's about to cut you off and, you know, come into your lane, it can apply the brakes. So it's got active steering, active braking, and probably like, you know, some level of active acceleration to a limited level uh, because it's limited by the velocity. So that's the biggest one, but there's lots of other features that could be coming in, and it all depends on the OEM of how they want to describe a feature to their customer. So what a feature may be delivered from a Daimler is different than a feature that an Audi e-tron may deliver or BMW, but they're using the same set of sensors. It's what software, the OEM and the tier one that are contracted to produce it, will deliver. Okay? When you start going further and further down, like uh, in level two, it's uh, active cruise control, for example, adaptive cruise control. I mean, it's a very, very simple thing. You know, you set it in, and if the car in front of you is decelerating, it will decelerate behind it, and as they start accelerating, so you don't have to keep applying the brake and keep resetting the cruise control. So if you think about it, it's such a rudimentary feature that a camera module perfectly can do it, lane keep assist, where a camera module is just looking at the 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 hash lines on the, the road to sort of keep you centered in the lane, yeah, you know, those are adequate and sufficient. LiDAR can do those as well. You know, our LiDAR can do those as well uh, because we have intensity channels. But it all comes down to what they want to field. And if a, in a LiDAR system was cheap enough, a single system in an entire fleet of vehicles can deliver level three features at high speeds and also level two features. And a level three feature at high speed would be something, let's call it, active lane keep assist, meaning it's actively deciding, you, you set the, a certain velocity you want to drive, and it actively decides what lane is a proper lane for you to be in and is able to maneuver you in safe positions at all times. So you could have a swarm of cars around you, and this is a, there's a video, a really nice YouTube video that uh, VW put out, or I think, it was, I think it's, it's actually VW Test Grounds, uh, that I recently saw, somebody actually showed it to me, uh, uh, <laughs> and it showed that they have like eight or nine vehicles, 
and there's an ego vehicle, and they're all just swarming and seeing that is the ego vehicle able to maneuver and stay safe. And that's the best way to describe. You get onto Los Angeles, uh, one of these highways in Los Angeles, or even like in, outside London, there's quite a lot of you know, high-speed maneuvering happening, and even if somebody, a safe driver in the middle of the lane, they need to be extremely vigilant to make sure that they're always in the right spot. And that would be a, what, let's call it like an active lane keep assist system that is not just trying to keep you in the same lane, but also trying to find the safest spot for you within the highway. Mm, that sounds fantastic. So let's focus on autonomous driving for a moment then. Are cameras as effective as, as LiDAR for autonomous driving? I think for autonomous driving, for level four and level five, all sensors will be needed. You need a sensor suite because for a single sensor, like unless the LiDAR sensor says, drive this way, don't drive that way. Now, this, at this point, the intervention from the driver is taken away for a computer system to be absolutely certain what it sees ahead of it and to make a decision, it would need redundancy. It would need multiple sensors independently agreeing that that's the right course of action. So in that case, if you think about it, there's always going to be multiple sensors, not a single LiDAR sensor, not a single radar, not a single camera module, multiple sensors required. And those multiple sensors increase the cost significantly higher, compute cost significantly higher. So it's going to take, in my personal opinion, I would say it would take, I shouldn't say that a lot, I guess, but, but it would take like decades. I mean, I love my car. It'd be hard for me to give my car go fully autonomous. But recently I heard a, a podcast from Malcolm Gladwell, so I can be honest with you. He was always against, you know, autonomous driving, but he's uh, very enthusiastic about it after he took a, a, a test drive in a Waymo vehicle. So, you know, uh, you know, I can say I've taken a, a test drive in one of those vehicles, right? It is kind of an interesting experience, but it's going to be a long time before the market, before I would say 100 million people globally want to give up their vehicle and decide that they want to just take fully autonomous vehicle. Now, I could be wrong about that, but you know, the market data clearly states that it's going to take some time for that level of autonomy to be available. But one thing is for sure, when that level of autonomy is there, you will need multiple sensors to be able to achieve that. So having a cost competitive sensor is very important. You know, radars are cost competitive. You know, they've been sort of industrialized over the decades. Camera modules, of course, because of iPhones and, you know, Samsung phones, they have been industrialized as well. As you industrialize LiDAR, you're still going to need multiple LiDARs in a single autonomous driving setup to be really absolutely sure that the decisions that they're taking are safe and adequate. Mm. Well, following on from that point, then, do you see sort of these ADAS-enabled high-speed safety features becoming commonplace, not just in luxury vehicles, but as standard features across OEM fleets? You know, and if so, how do you see that happening? Yeah, I absolutely see that. And it's not just because, uh, you know, I'm the CEO of a company that sells LiDAR. I can, with all honesty, tell you, like I've been to, I, I like to go to these meetings, meet the OEMs, meet the partners, and really understand what their problems are and make sure that we are on the right path with our product, right path with our story. Absolutely, the intent is to put it across many, many fleets. It is, safety is a big thing. You know, as cars have had more airbags added, people have just increased their velocities. You know, they just drive faster. Uh, not just here in Germany, but, you know, of course, in the U.S. as well. And speed is, you know, one of the things how people get into trouble. So I do believe that at the right price point, you're going to get significant penetration well within not just the high-end market. You know, the high-end market is where you actually establish your product line and you, you're able to deliver a, a very cohesive, comprehensive product. But then, of course, it has to go on to like the category C where, you know, I would say 40 percent of the market relies. And, of course, you'll have multiple sensors per car. So the market opportunity is there, but I absolutely believe it's just like airbags. It starts off with the premium cars. Once you can actually show a system that works and is scalable, it is definitely rolled out across the board because everybody wants in their vehicle. And then regulation steps in 
when there's actual data of how much safer the, the vehicle has become, that, that requires that at least a minimum level that every vehicle would have to have someday in the future. Mm, brilliant. So I understand that Microvision is currently conducting highway LIDAR test track work. So can you tell us what these tests involve and what you hope to achieve? So think about every driving scenario that you've ever been in your life or you know, in, in a vehicle where you were not driving. They're, they're so incredibly unique. So if somebody was to give us you know, a matrix to say, hey, you know what? Here's the matrix of tests. If you do all of them, it covers every scenario out there. If you pass them, you're the best. We want you, right? That matrix would be so large, it could take decades for anybody to do it. So every OEM, they always discuss with you of what are the critical test scenarios that they feel they would want to be tested uh, you know, for their safety system, that what they have found is what their system struggles with. And then, of course, there's a, you know, all the other generic uh, test scenarios that you have to actually go through. So when we do these highway uh, uh, tests, we, we specifically set up some scenarios that you would be very familiar with. For example, like the scenario I described, you're in the middle lane, somebody cuts you off. Or you're in a lane and somebody's coming on an on-ramp at the completely wrong velocity and you can totally see that they don't see you and you're going to intersect. Sounds very simple, but, you know, yeah, you just go to the left lane, but what if something is in the left lane? These kind of scenarios are going into a tunnel or there's some debris in the middle of the road. How do you maneuver around that without slamming your brakes? All these test scenarios you, you set up, and uh, the purpose of that is like as you're driving through them, the, there's the driver still in control, but the LIDAR is also going in parallel collecting data so we can demonstrate how much better our performance would have been compared to a, you know, a test track driver, who, by the way, are professional drivers. This is not an average driver. This is a test track driver. And of course, then we extrapolate that out to like, you know, what happens if you had an average driver in the case and how much better our performance would have been. So these test cases are actually very important because they demonstrate the capability of the sensor to make decision in time factors, in time constants. How much time can we shave off when planning would be complete and maneuvering can start? So when you think about maneuvering, if you think about when you, when you pull on your steering wheel or press on a brake or an accelerator, there's some physical limits of how much pressure or back pressure you feel against the steering wheel at a certain velocity. Those things are programmed into your vehicle or designed into your vehicle by every OEM. That's, you know, the, the vehicle dynamics. That's, again, determined the laws of physics. So, therefore, as fast as possible, we can help them make the decision. They can start what's called the maneuver. The planning phase has to get done. So, you identify what's happening, you help them with the planning, and then start the maneuvering part of it, which is kind of fixed. So, that's what you can expect about... Uh, uh, as we are developing these features on the test track, we're seeing how much time we can save, even high speeds, to start making the decision that how quickly did we identify the issue and we tagged it and therefore a domain controller can start making a decision of what the maneuver is, there, what the plan is to maneuver around that device and start executing the maneuver. Surely it's not possible to test for every single scenario though. It's not possible, but I think you know what OEMs are very good at, they understand because they have so much history, they understand uh, what are the test scenarios you have to do? And by the way, the database is public. You can go to the NHTSA website, and if you are as uh, interested in this stuff as I am, you can download the previous year's accident data. So whenever there's an accident, a police report is usually filed. And believe it or not, in the U.S., it ends up on the NHTSA website in an Excel spreadsheet. So they will say four-lane highway, 40 miles an hour, you know, unprotected left turn. They'll give you the statistics, what is happening, how many cars, how many passengers, what was happening, what the time. So there's lots and lots and lots of data you can pour through and you can come up with test scenarios that represent some of the most difficult scenarios that any kind of compute system would have. 
And these are published in Europe. They're published in the U.S. These are public databases that are available. And what we do is scour through that, and we come up with scenarios that uh, resonate with the OEM because they know those scenarios because their engineers struggle with solving those problems as well. So there's a common language that's there. So it's not more like we just invent something and we, you know, if you're the OEM page, we come to you and we present. Both of us are familiar with the language that NHTSA, how NHTSA and Euro NCAP and all the other, you know, regulatory bodies, how they evaluate the safety of a system. And based on that, we can always communicate. Mm. Well, speaking of data, then, I understand that, that there's a need for a rich sort of instantaneous 3D point cloud data stream that is able to support ADAS functionality, sort of even at highway speeds of 130 you know, kilometers an hour. So could you explain what, what is meant by a, a 3D point data cloud stream and how it can inform and enhance the development of, of future automotive technology? Think about your Xerox scanner. You put in a paper, you hit scan, it just, you know, this, this one line goes in and scans and, you know, comes out the copy. Imagine of a LiDAR, all it's actually doing, it's scanning a, def- a defined 3D space which is the field of view and ranges combined. What it's actually doing is digitizing point by point that space. If it hits anything else, it generates a point. That's it. So at the most basic level, all the LiDAR is doing is just digitizing the entire field, a snapshot by a snapshot by a snapshot, right? But the snapshot is no longer a, like a 2D image. A snapshot is multiple 3D images and therefore, there's a massive amount of data, and you have to run through that data very, very quickly, define velocities, do the segmentation, figure out what's happening, define drivable, not drivable space. And at a, at a very simplified level, I mean, it's overly simplified, but that's all it is, is you're digitizing at a very fast pace a complicated scene and making decisions of, I don't care if it's a tumbleweed, I don't care if it's a mailbox, I don't care if it's a Mini Cooper. In all cases, don't hit it because it could, it could be bad. I mean, that's an accident, right? So for us, it's like you digitize as fast as possible, segment and identify them as, hey, don't hit that object. That's drivable, not drivable. We don't have to do classification because at ADAS level, we want to go to a decision point as fast as possible saying there's an object there, here's the cluster that it represents, not drivable. Mm, fantastic. I mean, the, the shift that's happening right now in the automotive industry is, is placing sort of great pressure on OEMs to add more technology into vehicles. So in a marketplace that's becoming, you know, commoditized when it comes to vehicle performance, how can OEMs and automotive designers differentiate themselves? This is what I believe. And, you know, I have you know, done quite a lot of work on this and checked this so I can just give you my impression of it. If let's say, you know, a decade ago, you and I represented two different OEMs, global OEMs, top tier. Our drivetrain was a differentiator. You know, how did you sell a car? Horsepower. You know, oh, it's going to give you this feel. You know, you're going to get, you know, this kind of uh, safety feature associated with it. You think about an electric vehicle. Some of the performances that you talk about electric vehicle, like, you know, for example, Tesla or others, it blows away our powertrain. These electric motors are unbelievable performance. You know, they give you a, such an exciting, even at a very low price point, they can give you a very exciting ride. So what's the differentiator? You know, battery pack, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the motor set, they're always going to be there. It comes to safety because these kind of uh, EV systems, when they come out, a big differentiator would always be safety. And I think... You can, you know, you can look at CEOs of uh, these uh, OEM companies, you know, their public comments. They've talked about it, how they believe safety and ADAS and, you know, way down in the future, autonomous driving is going to make or break their brands. And this is not just one OEM, right? You know, OEMs in the U.S., OEMs in Europe. They've consistently said that, that they believe the next forefront is safety. 
and EV is coming. You know, EV vehicles are dominant, you know, in the future. As you look at the future towards most of these vehicles, I think Audi just recently announced a few days ago that, you know, they expect the majority of their fleet by 2025 trying to be. And it's not just a push by regulators because they realize that, you know, you can have a really amazing ride. You can have a really amazing experience with the safety and the vehicle by itself is a very exciting product that, you know, most consumers are looking for actually. So I think EV is going to be a driver and safety is a differentiator. And it's very, very important for a company like us and other companies that are in the ADAS space. We're not a LIDAR company, we're an ADAS company. As you know, we start delivering sensors and software to OEMs for their vehicles that we solve some of these tough ADAS problems for them. It's mm, a very interesting point. And sort of focusing on the EV market a bit more, you know, recent figures have shown that that 34% of, of consumers are saying they're likely to own an autonomous vehicle in the next 10 years, sort of putting more pressure on the development of ADAS features. So with this in mind, what do you see the next wave of ADAS systems looking like and how will they evolve? I think the next set of ADAS system, I think the biggest focus right now will be like any new introduction to market. You have to deliver a very solid product that every consumer can believe in. Like when you get into a car, I'm, I know myself, I never worry about the airbag in any vehicle I ever get into. I mean, this is a you know, decade and, you know, so many people that I know, there's a trust in that technology and there's trust that, you know, it's scalable. It's a car that we can afford that it's not only, you know, for an elite car, all those things, you know, you have to build trust with the consumer. So, you know, we can have these like very lofty goals about how many vehicles are going to be sold. But at first you have to build trust with the consumer and the most basic features have to make sense. Uh, I travel a lot, as, as you can imagine, so I rent a lot of cars. And recently, I, in, a, in a different location, I had an ADAS level two where on active lane keep assist, I had to keep, had to keep touching and keep interacting with the uh, steering wheel. And to be honest with you, I actually turned off the system because it's kind of annoying because in the old days when I had my cruise control, I could hit the cruise control and I could just drive. <laughs> you know, it's not that big of a deal. But now I have to keep tapping the thing and it, it just felt kind of like intrusive, so to speak. So as these features become more normal to a consumer, what you're used to for your own driving means that there is more certainty in what decision a domain controller will make compared to a human, that acceptance level will go higher. So your 34% uh, statistics there, it's great. They want an EV, they want safety. They're, they, you know, they're telling the audience what they want in the future, but now comes the rubber hits the road, uh, no pun intended. Now you actually have to deliver a feature that those 34% of people that are saying they want and the next 34% after them say, hey, that's a pretty cool experience that experience has to be something that you it's very you know uh, intuitive uh, you know what has to happen and i'm going to use an example that you know is going to resonate with you for ADAS to be successful the iphone moment has to be arrived whereas everything was little plastic keys on a blackberry product which is an awesome product i had those right but the first time you had a capacitive touch display even though the typing was not the best it got so much better it completely changed the landscape it completely changed the entire, uh, you know, communication language that one had with the product. And that moment has to arrive for ADAS. So something has to be done where people are just so intuitively ingrained into the product, they will trust the product more. And that's how those volumes get delivered. Mm, excellent. It'll be exciting to see where the technology goes in the future. Um, so before we finish, is there anything else you'd like to add to the discussion? No, I think that was pretty complete. I think uh, it's an exciting time. I think, you know, there's uh, much more exciting days ahead than behind. I think there's lots more to be had, but I think the conversation, I enjoy the conversation all the time because it's getting more mature because people are asking the tough question that it's not the hype that gets anybody attention anymore. If you can't answer the question about, is it scalable? Is somebody can afford? Is it safe? Is, you know, what I feel safe that my mom buys a car, 
you know, with the technology in it, right? Those are actual questions that consumers will have, and that's what's happening. So the hype cycle, you know, is over. Now comes the real part of who's real and who's not. So it's exciting times, and I think, you know, uh, I look forward to talking more about it in the future. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your insights. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Paige. Have a wonderful day. Electronic specifier.